Okay, so I'm curious if there are any runners in the room this morning. Please raise your hand, be brave. Thank you for one honest person. I see some, okay, thank you, yep. I was gonna call on you in the back. Um, You'll notice I did not raise my hand. I admire all of you people out there who run. And once upon a time, I was an aspiring runner. My training regimen lasted for about two months, maybe. When I decided, you know, perhaps prematurely, but I decided that my joints are just waiting for the return of Jesus. And so until then, running is not for me. But I was really intrigued by running because it's free. You can do it anywhere, theoretically. And most of all, I really wanted to experience, you know, this so-called runner's high. Have you ever heard of that? Still no hands. Come on, people, wake up. Okay, thank you. So apparently... The theory is if you run long enough or hard enough, your body reacts to the stress by releasing a cocktail of chemicals that will numb you to the pain, but also give you a sense of euphoria. And I thought, that sounds great. But I can't say for sure whether it's real because I never, I never ran that far. I never achieved the runner's high. But my, my uncle is a serious runner, and um, he ran you know, marathons up into his 60s. And he's told me enough stories to believe that not only is the runner's high real, but that long-distance runners also have incredible mental stamina that enables them to keep going long after the euphoria wears off. They know how to keep moving when they're exhausted, hungry, dizzy, in horrible pain, you name it. My uncle uh, told me a story about this happening to him. He fell and tripped in a pothole um, in the last string of miles during the Boston Marathon. And so he ran the last four miles with a busted and bleeding knee because he was in terrible pain, but he was determined to finish. He's from Alabama, and he had flown all the way to Boston for this race. He wanted to finish. It's admirable, a little crazy too, perhaps, um, but it's inspiring. And it takes a lot of training to run like that. Lots of practice asking and answering the question, Why? Why should I keep going, keep putting one foot in front of the other when every part of my body hurts right now? I don't think you ever learn to run very far unless you have an answer to that question. Now, over the next four weeks, we're looking together at the book of Hebrews, which is addressed to a group of Christians who are struggling to stay motivated on the long-distance run of faith. So they're past the initial euphoria of conversion, right? And they're now settling into the reality that in many ways, following Jesus makes life harder than it was before. For them, the life of faith included harassment, public shaming, even the plundering of their property we learn about in chapter 10. They were socially marginalized and likely disowned by some of their families. Some of them were imprisoned. And in light of these real and weighty pressures, many of them were beginning to waver. They were beginning to lose their confidence in the story. Is Jesus really who he said he is? If so, why are things going so badly for us? Is he really coming back? If so, why isn't he here yet? Does our faithfulness really matter? If so, why is it so hard? Maybe you can relate to some of those questions. Nobody knows exactly who wrote this letter or who exactly the Hebrews even are, meaning we don't have a lot of details about the original context. It was most likely written to a group of 
ethnically Jewish Christians, the Hebrews, who were tempted to quietly assimilate back into the safety of the synagogue in the face of persecution. But there also might have been Gentile believers in their midst, converts who craved the social respect that could be theirs once again if they would abandon Christ and associate with the unbelieving world around them. So it's probably both kinds of Christians in the congregation. Either way, the author's intent and message is the same. He says in chapter 10, this great summarizing statement, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The pastor wrote this letter. He's encouraging these tired and intimidated Christians to persevere, to hold fast to Christ even when it hurts. He's cheering them on, kind of like a running coach, maybe. I've never had a running coach. Maybe that would have changed my running career. He's cheering them on, teaching them how to keep going. And he's reminding them why they're running in the first place. So really, chapters 1 through 10 can be summarized like this. Why are we following Jesus? Because he's the one. You might be tempted to go back to the temple, but Jesus is the one the temple points to. He's the sacrifice and the priest and the promise you've been waiting for. He's the one to whom all things have been given. Chapter 2 tells us everything has been put in subjection under his feet. Now, right now, we don't experience it that way. We don't yet see everything in subjection to Christ, but he who promised is faithful. So hold fast to him. Hold fast to the end because... This is chapter 10, verse 23. When you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. There is a finish line for the faithful, and there is a prize. There is a rest in store for us, a home and a city with foundations whose architect and designer is God. It's coming. This is how chapter 10 ends, right before our passage today picks it up. He says, you have need of endurance, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Well, that's a little heavy. But then he goes on to say, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's coaching them. These words are a warning and an encouragement and a reminder of the prize all in one. And the truth is, we need it all, don't we? Because the journey is long and the temptations are real and we can't see the finish line. We can't see the reality that all things are in subjection to Christ. We don't know the day of his coming. What we do see and feel sometimes deceive us into thinking that this is all there is or this is all that matters. So we need to be reminded that there's a bigger picture outside our frame of vision. That's what faith is In a nutshell, he says in chapter 11, verse 1, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, this language is really hard to translate into English, and then on top of that, some of us have heard this language so many times that we've kind of lost the meaning. So to hear it with fresh ears, I'm going to read just a few different translations. Faith is being confident of what we hope for, convinced of what we do not see, Faith makes us sure of what we hope for and gives us proof of what we cannot see. And then here's good old Eugene Peterson. He says, Our trust in God is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. 
It's our handle on what we cannot see. In the modern West, I think we often err on one side or the other when we talk about faith. On the one side, we describe faith as a kind of blind, you know, mindless sentimentality that people just sort of fall into like a bed of roses, you know. Just have faith, man. Just believe. It doesn't matter how ridiculous, how irrational, how unmoored from reality a belief is. If you believe it, if it works for you, then go for it. It doesn't matter if it's actually true or not because it's been relegated to the realm of faith. On the other hand, and I think perhaps in reaction to that, we sometimes define faith by the other extreme. We treat it as a kind of intellectual exercise that seeks to wholly explain and understand something without leaving any room for mystery. We reduce faith to a science and we presume that unless we can rationally understand and predictably repeat something, then it can't be true. Now, I think the church falls prey to both of these deficient understandings of faith. But biblical faith offers us a third way. It invites us to be confident even while acknowledging that we don't have all the answers. In other words, biblical faith is not experienced exclusively in our feelings. This isn't just something we embrace because it feels good. Because let's be honest, sometimes it doesn't feel good. Sometimes it hurts to believe. And sometimes we feel nothing at all. But faith is not subject to sentiment. But also, biblical faith isn't subject to our intellect. It's not experienced exclusively in our heads. The gospel isn't held captive by your ability to understand or explain it in any given moment. And that's good news because, let's be honest, can you understand the Trinity? If you're thinking yes, then you're probably a heretic. Just kidding, sort of. Of course we want to think well and deeply about our faith, and there are lots of ways to do that, lifetimes to be given to the study of theology. But we set ourselves up for failure when we expect to have all the answers. We don't. But here's what we do have, and here's where Hebrews 11 takes us. We have a story that we can give ourselves to, We have a God whose character we know enough to say yes to. Biblical faith is more than intellectual assent and it is more than emotional resonance. Biblical faith is embodied trust. Listen to all the action verbs in the stories that follow. Our fathers and mothers in the faith, they offered, they drew near, they built arks, they obeyed, they went out, they lived in tents, they conceived children. Now, the people described in these passages weren't sinless. They didn't have all the answers. They didn't always get it right or do right. But they acted on what they knew of God and believed about his character. They put their bodies in the way of obedience, even when obedience didn't seem to make any sense. Noah, for example, built a boat when he'd never even seen rain before. Think about how strange that must have felt. Abraham left the stability and wealth of his homeland to sojourn in a tent in the desert. And Sarah, well, Sarah tried to get pregnant in her 90s. And I understand why she laughed about that one. But these stories, they're such a gift to us for that very reason. Because yes, they inspire, but also I think they help us to look back throughout history and to understand faith has never been easy. 
There were no good old days for God's people when they just had everything handed to them. But by the same token, we need these stories so that we can look back and say, yeah, it's never been easy, but God has always been faithful. He did bring the rain for Noah. He did give Sarah a son. He did and he does fulfill his promises. So we can trust him now even when those promises seem far off. We can be confident that Christian hope isn't just a sentiment or an idea. Our hope is a person who has proved himself time and time again. In fact, he has proved himself once for all by his death and resurrection. And that is why we keep putting one foot in front of the other on this journey to meet him. Because he is good for his word and we want to be ready when he comes. That's what our gospel reading is about this morning. Now let me say just one other thing about these stories of faith, this you know, ancient roll call that we read about in Hebrews 11. And it relates to, I think, another mistake that we sometimes make in our conception of faith, which is this. We tend to think that for people of faith, everything will work out in the end. Just keep believing, just keep praying, and God will tie up our stories with a nice little bow on top. Things might be hard now, right? We might be a mess, but there's a happy ending coming, just like in all the Disney movies. Do you ever catch yourself thinking like this? Whether it comes wrongly from a sense of entitlement, which we're very good at here in America, or perhaps whether this comes rightly from our belief in God's goodness because we do know that his character is good. The reality is that our faith often begins to break down when we don't get the resolution we expect. When we did trust God, but then he doesn't work things out the way we hoped he would. Or maybe when he doesn't work things out for someone close to us. When we watch a loved one suffer, or when we witness just one more tragedy on the news than our hearts can handle. I experienced my own version of this about four years ago when I woke up on Thanksgiving morning to learn that my youngest brother had taken his own life the night before. He'd had a really hard childhood, and he'd struggled so much through his teens, and I really had hoped that he would find his way to adulthood, that his story would take a turn, and that things would end in a different place for him than they began. And in the weeks that followed his death, I found myself asking, is God really good? Can love really heal people? And if not, then why the heck am I in ministry? And I realized that I couldn't rush past those questions. I had to sit with them for some time. And during that season, those questions were with me every time I tried to pray, every time I was in church, every time I tried to fall asleep. They were there, like a dark cloud hovering beside me all the time. But God was there too. And for a while, faith just looked like staying in the room together. My questions and God and me. And after that, faith looked like still having lots of unanswered questions, but eventually finding the words from John chapter 6, when Jesus asks the disciples if they want to turn away from him after hearing some hard things. And Peter responds by saying, Lord, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. Sometimes life doesn't go the way we thought it would. Sometimes we don't get the happy ending 
where else can we go, brothers and sisters? We follow Jesus because he's the one. And sometimes that's the only answer we can muster. And what encourages me about this hall of faith in Hebrews 11 is that those who experienced the triumphs of this life stand right beside those whose lives fell apart. Our spiritual parents remind us that the life of faith is large enough to hold our highest joys and our greatest sorrows. This is why we hear about Abel right next to Enoch. Enoch was so blessed by God, he didn't even taste death. He was just taken up, whatever that means. And Abel was murdered. Talk about opposite endings. And in case we don't catch this theme at the beginning, the chapter ends like this. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? Time would fail to tell of all the others who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That's all the good stuff, right? Those are the outcomes we like. But then he goes on in verse 35. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and caves. And then in verse 39, he says, And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, there's a lot there, uh, too much for the time we have left, but here's how I want to leave it. Christian faith does not resolve tension or longing. It assumes it. Faith assumes that our stories, however happy or sad, however they end, are not the end. That both the glory and the grief of this life is just a shadow, a foretaste of the city that is coming, the city with foundations. Maybe this morning you and God are just cruising right along, Maybe you've hit the runner's high, and for you, the Christian life is firing on all cylinders. Praise the Lord if that's you. But maybe that's not where you are right now. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're holding the pieces of a story that you can't see how they could ever fit back together again. Maybe you're exhausted and hurting and wondering how you could possibly take one more step. Either way, this moment This story is not all there is. A better city is coming. It was true for our parents in the faith, and it is true for us. From Abel to Abraham, God's promise has come and is coming, and we are still waiting to see it fulfilled. Until then, we're all still living in tents. To whatever extent we've enjoyed the land of promise in this life, we remain sojourners in it, like Abraham and his sons. Our experiences in this world have an impermanence to them, an incompleteness, which is why we're called strangers and exiles in verse 13. But then it says this, verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, if your experience of faith leaves you longing for something more, 
that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. In fact, it could mean you're doing it right. Because faith compels us to look for a better country. It's coming. God is preparing it for you. And he is not ashamed to be called your God, even on the days that it's hard, or when it hurts, or when you feel nothing at all. So let us hold fast to our confession, for he who promised is faithful. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.